Today I'm sitting here with Brad Feld, who runs uh, the Foundry Group, or is one of the partners in the Foundry Group. I'm one of the partners. I do not run it. Okay, Brad <laughs> my, doesn't want my, it. My other three partners run me. Okay. <laughs> and we're all, we're all equal, so. So, um, so, Brad, tell me a little bit about who you are and where you've come from and what you want to be when you're a big boy. Well, I, uh, I've lived in Boulder and since 1995, so I've been here for 15 years. Um, I started uh, life as an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 19 uh, at MIT when I was an undergrad there. Um, it was self-funded. We raised 10 bucks because that's what we had and uh, built a business over seven years that we sold to a public company, my partner and I. Um, I spent a couple of years working for that public company as they grew. They were ultimately acquired by GE Capital for about a half a billion dollars. So it was very interesting to be part of my small success and then part of their big success. During that period of time, 94 to 96, I started making angel investments with my own money. I made about 40 angel investments. A lot of early internet-related companies, uh, East Coast and West Coast, uh, companies like uh, uh, NetGenesis and Critical Path and Harmonix uh, that all went on to big success. In 96, I joined up with three other guys, and we started a venture firm that started off as SoftBank Venture Capital um, that was affiliated with SoftBank and uh, evolved into Mobius Venture Capital, same business but just different name. And then in 2006, with my uh, other three partners, uh, started Foundry Group, and the four of us continue to manage all the old Mobius funds, so there's still a very active number of companies, probably about 40 companies or so in the old Mobius Venture Capital funds that, that we manage in addition to uh, the fund that we raised in 2007. So I've sort of gone through this uh, evolution from entrepreneur to angel investor uh, to venture capital investor and have been involved in lots of interesting things along the way, like Techstars, which I helped start in 2006 uh, with David Cohen. Cool. All right. Can you talk about the deal size on your sale? Sure. My first company was we sold it for a couple million bucks, some cash, uh, some stock. And stock was in a public company. That public company went on to increase in value a fair amount and then pulled back and then ultimately G bought the company. So, you know, the end result, uh, you know, to me was, you know, a modest amount of millions of dollars. It was a good, a good start from a... Yeah. I mean, I was, 20, I was 28. It gave me enough money. I, I then turned around and reinvested most of that money. Uh, in startups. So many of the, the companies that I invested in between 94 and 96 of my own money, much of that money that I made from selling my first company uh, went into that. I bought a house and a couple of other things. But, and uh, a number of those companies ended up being extremely successful from a financial perspective. So it was a good, good object lesson in taking 10 bucks, turning it into, you know, through a lot of hard work as an entrepreneur, you know, a million or two. And then from that, turning that into uh, some real wealth through, through some smart investing. Hmm. That's impressive. I, I was curious when you talked about your progression, you talked about that you were uh, with SoftBank and then you moved off and, and founded Mobius Ventures. Um, I've met people that have been, that, 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 I guess these are big brands that you work under their brand as VCs and then and then you do that for a while and then you move on. I, I'm, I'm curious as to how that worked and was that a good thing to do? Yeah, so SoftBank Venture Capital, which was the name of our firm that we started in 90, 96, 97, um, well, SoftBank, that was your company, was it? Well, SoftBank Corporation is a Japanese company. Right. And um, the way that that came together was SoftBank Corporation uh, uh, sponsored us to start a venture group. So they were one of our initial investors. There's a little sort of prehistory to that, which is that the, the team that uh, three of the guys, uh, the three guys plus me, the three of them had been working for SoftBank Corporation in the U.S. making investments. During that period of time, um, through a series of events, the four of us, I was working with them as an affiliate, so I was sort of doing my own investing, but also bringing them deals and showing them things and helping with some of their investments. Uh, we ended up deciding to raise money separate from SoftBank, so SoftBank sponsored us. We raised a separate fund, but as part of that, we used a SoftBank name. So we were called SoftBank Venture Capital, and we were affiliated with SoftBank, but we owned the business. Um, they had some economics in the first fund that we did, but and over time had different economics in the different funds, um, but essentially looked like a limited partner, like any other limited partner in terms of control and impact and management of the, the firm. In 2000, I think, I can't remember whether it was 2000 or 2001 when we changed our name, um, the, uh, for a long time the SoftBank branding was very helpful to us it, as SoftBank Venture Capital, and we were the investment vehicle for SoftBank in the U.S., um, over time, SoftBank had aspirations, probably 2001 when we changed the name, SoftBank had aspirations to do lots more things worldwide, 
um, do later stage type investing, and set up a bunch of other funds that were all SoftBank something. So there was a series of SoftBank related funds of which we became one. And by 2001, it was getting pretty confusing as to who was doing what. Mm. And you know, as the U.S. investment group, you know, we'd raised a lot of capital separate from SoftBank. Um, although we still had a lot of SoftBank capital and we're very close to them, we decided that it was in sort of everyone's best interest to reduce some of the confusion and change our name from SoftBank, and we ended up choosing Mobius. So we didn't actually change anything structurally. We didn't start a new fund. We just changed the name. Um, and you know, some of that was confusion, brand dynamics. Some of that was we'd gotten big enough, you know, where we had a separate identity at that point. And probably some of it was just. Uh, you know, there were enough people sort of around the table that say this is a sep- this is a different thing. Let's make sure the world knows it's a different thing. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm, something I'm really interested in because you've gone through, you've you've had a successful exit, but then you went straight into investing, right? You, you talked about that you you made some money, but then you basically invested a lot of it. Why did you choose that path rather than saying, well, now I've made some money and I'm going to go and start a bigger thing? So the time frame that I was investing from 94 to 96, the first year and a half of it, I was working full-time for the company that bought mine, which was Meridata. So, you know, I started off, uh, they bought my business, we created their consulting practice, we doubled our business in about nine months just based off of the growth that they had and some easy business that came our way. And then um, the, the parent company, Meridata, bought a $20 million business that looked like ours, and we merged our piece into it. And at that point, I stopped having any sort of line responsibility for managing the consulting business and had staff responsibility. I worked for the two co-chairmen of the company. I did a a, CTO-type work uh, during that period of time. And as part of that, I was starting to invest my own money with their acknowledgement and permission. And in fact, the two co-chairmen invested. They were were part of a number of the angel syndicates uh, that I put together. So I was in this phase where I was essentially, you know, working full-time for you know, it was very rapidly growing public company, and I was making angel investments while I was doing that. I was pretty active, sort of at the tail end of the time that I was at Ameridata, I got increasingly active with some of these companies as, you know, chairman, but not a full-time employee. I never took a salary from any of them, didn't work for them, but, you know, had equity in them and played that role. And I really never liked managing a business. Like, even in, in my first company, which was Feld Technologies, I, I think we created a really nice little business. I think we were, you know, a group of people that worked hard and enjoyed working together. I was always, you know, medium bored with being, you know, a CEO. Like, I, I, I didn't love it. It wasn't like, you know, I, I was good at it, I was effective at it, but it wasn't like I, I aspired to now be the CEO of a thousand-person company. And as I was investing as an angel, what I started realizing was I really enjoyed helping create the companies and working with the CEO who wanted to be the CEO of a thousand-person company. Um, But that sort of advisory support investment role was much more satisfying to me than the hands-on operational being the executive uh, on the front-line role. And that's really what sort of led me into this path of doing venture capital rather than continuing to operate. Okay, so let me ask. I'm, I'm curious. Is I mean, you've, you've seen all of, the, all of those roles. You've gone from being entrepreneur to, angel, to being acquired to angel to VC. Um, I've noticed that a lot, of, a lot of people do that, and they, they move to being a VC. Is it just more fun being a VC than it is being an entrepreneur? No. In fact, I think a lot of operational executives who become VCs uh, who then suck at being VCs end up going back to being operational executives. So I I think that it's a different thing. I had a lot of trouble, and I think a lot of people that move into the venture business have a lot of trouble from an operational background, have a lot of trouble the first couple of years, especially if they get involved in some high-growth companies, separating between the investment investing role and the operating role. And I, I struggled with that till probably 2000. So until maybe 2001, till 2001, I still was very deeply involved in a number of companies operationally. You know, my, the lines were blurry uh, between who was taking responsibility for managing the business, my interaction with the CEO, and oftentimes the executive teams um, were ambiguous as to who was actually in charge, me or the CEO. Not by design, but just because of you know personality and the way that I spent my time. And it took me a while to get to the point, and, and really for me, the critical place that got me to the point was when the internet bubble burst. You know, I had a year that was just an abysmal year uh, in 2001, and I had just a ton of shit, you know, flying everywhere. And I just I couldn't I couldn't spend the time being an operational executive anywhere. I had to be uh, I had to be the investor. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was co-chairman of two public companies. I was chairman of a bunch of other companies. So I was in this sort of very visible. 
you know, company leadership role. And um, I, I redefined how I spent my time with the companies where I have a very simple operating principle today, which is um, I only ever want to make one decision about a company, which is whether or not I'm supportive of the person running the company. And assuming I am, my job is to help that person however they need help. Mm-hmm. And so every CEO has different kinds of things they want help with. And it's, it's my job to be able to be flexible enough and good enough to help that person however they want the help. And if I don't support them for some reason, I need to deal with that. And sometimes that means just direct confrontation and you get back to a happy place. And other times it means making, you know, making a change. Um, but, but when I sort of focused that, which was, okay, I'm, I'm a supporting player here, not a controlling player, that really changed um, uh, how I spent my time. And I think a lot of operational execs that become VCs struggle with that, and some really figure out their own rhythm. Not all of them end up you know, figuring out the same kind of thing I do, but they figure out how to do it effectively, and others don't. Um, and it's not that they don't and they're overbearing and trying to overmanage businesses, um, but they just might not figure out how to be effective in that supporting role based on where they were, or it might not be satisfying to them. So I don't think it's that venture capital is more fun. It's different. Um, it's a place where I think if you have operating background, your chances of being really great at it. Uh, you know, if you've walked in the CEO's shoes, your ability to understand how to help that CEO uh, I think is greater than somebody who has never walked in that person's shoes before. But that doesn't mean you can't be a great VC at, without operating experience. I mean, Fred Wilson, you know, mm. who's, who's a good friend, somebody I know you've interviewed, is a great example of that. I mean, Fred never ran anything. Right. And he's phenomenal. Um, but he's, you know, if you ask him, well, how'd you learn how to be phenomenal? He spent a lot of time learning how to be phenomenal. It took him a, a while. Um, and it took me a while to get to the place where I, I, I feel like I really had mastered what I was doing. Do you think um, it's... You, if you're, I guess, I guess if you're a good VC, it's the same as being a good, good entrepreneur. The, the returns are going to be good if you're good, and they're going to be bad if you're bad. Of course, and I mean, I actually think that if if your focus is on how can I make the most money, um, uh, you should be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs have have you know huge uh, upside in success case. Uh, that's extraordinary, and you know you, ha- you know that extraordinary success case is you have to be a huge winner. But if you're focused on the, the financial dynamics uh, as your as your motivation, uh, and that's the only point of analysis, always going to be better to be an entrepreneur. Um, I think that anybody that's focused just purely on the financial dynamics of what they're doing is an idiot. Right. Um, and you know, in fact, I think you. You know, part of the choice for me to be a venture cap, you know, to do venture capital versus going back and being an operating exec, um, uh, you know, both both for me have been very lucrative, and being an angel investor has been very lucrative. I I looked at where I wanted to spend my time and where I thought I could have the most impact uh, on entrepreneurship and do the things that were most interesting to me. Um, but you're doing this and you're not painting, right? Well, because I don't want to paint. I mean, I could, you know, I suppose I could paint. My mom's an artist, right? But I don't want to. I mean, I, you know, when, when you ask me, if you ask me the question, what's exciting to me, what's exciting to me is the, uh, the essence of creating companies. And, you know, I decided a long time ago that professionally I would spend the balance of my active professional life um, helping entrepreneurs um, create companies. Not creating a company or creating several companies, but creating many companies. And not just helping experienced entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs, but helping a range of entrepreneurs. Mm. And part of our strategy as a venture firm is we're doing it in areas that we feel like we know really, really well. So we've also constrained our world. We said, you know, within software and Internet, there's a massive amount of innovation over the next 20 years. And so for a professional career, we can spend all of it in one area. Another, just to play off of that, another tenant, which is part of, you know, how, how we think about it at Foundry Group, is we've decided not to grow. So, you know, a lot of venture firms over time, you know, grow, they add partners, they add associates, they raise bigger funds, they have other strategies, they expand to China and India, they start doing clean tech or whatever. Um, You know, myself and my three other partners have decided that it's the four of us until we're done and then we're turning out the lights. We don't want to manage people. We don't want to add people to the team. We don't want to have to have new personalities in the mix. We don't want to have bigger funds that we have to manage. So every fund that we raise will be the same size as the first fund that we raised. Uh, which was a $225 million fund. So we have a lot of sort of deeply held beliefs that allow us to then focus our energy on the thing that we're really passionate about mm. rather than get confused about, you know, where should we be spending our time and what should we be doing. Mm. So actually, I'm, I'm interested on, on the other side, on the VC side, like um, how you raise money. And I also saw um, Paul Kodrowski sent out a report um, and your, your uh, IRR, which is your rate of return, was 
um, for that, that period, the highest of all the VCs. Interested in how that, how that looks from the, your investors? Well, you have uh, investors you have to account to, right? Yeah, of course. We have, uh, in our fund, we have about 20 institutional investors, um, you know, a mix of uh, uh, pension funds, fund of funds, insurance companies, but people who have long-term investment and commitment to venture capital, um, you know, all of our investors are people that really chose to invest with us. When we, you know, went fundraising in 2007, we started from scratch. It's not a bunch of sort of older investors that we had from the Mobius uh, investment group, but we actually started with no, you know, committed investors and, and, and built 20, 20 new relationships um, with the idea that they'd support us if we were successful. We have to perform, but that they'd support us uh, over, you know, multiple funds with the premise, we said at the beginning, that we weren't going to expand. So it's kind of like, you know, if you want to invest with us, this is the time to do it. Um, uh, we think we have a great set of limited partners. They're very clear thinking. They all understand the ups and downs of the venture capital community. They understand what's important to us and why we're the way we are. So it's very easy for us to have a partnering relationship with them versus they're just our money and they're sort of abstracted somewhere else. Um, and so uh, it's been a rewarding relationship from a purely, you know, from a, from a IRR perspective. I mean, IRRs like that come and go. I mean, right. you know, we don't we don't measure ourselves based on our interperiod IRR, um, you know, as reported against realized and unrealized gains. We only really measure ourselves based on you give me a dollar, how many dollars did I give you back at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. And we think that's all our investors really care about, which is you know do 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 you know do we provide an outsized return, you know, versus did we beat the, you know, public market index by two percentage points. That's not, the, that's not what we do. We don't try to beat the public market index by two percentage points. We try to make it so that the public market index, whatever it is, is completely irrelevant because we've returned so much more money back over a period of time. And, you know, that'll be the measure of success. Uh, I think it's, you know, I feel like we're off to a great start. I, I feel like, you know, we've made 29 investments out of our first fund. We've been very much on strategy. We've had a couple of uh, extraordinary early companies that have grown very, very quickly. Zynga is the most notable, but we also have several other companies. AdMeld would be another one, um, you know, that have just out of the gate as a seed investment turned into very substantial uh, companies in very short order. And I think, uh, you know, we have some, some sleepers that are very big companies. We have a company in L.A. called Oblong uh, that will be profitable this year. Um, you know, that's uh, not a, you know, a broadly talked about company sort of within the venture community, um, but is some extraordinary entrepreneurs, extraordinary technology in a real business. So, you know, we're really pleased about it. Do you, do you have, like you talked about how you got in, very involved with some of the companies in your early days yep. when you're investing in them. Um, do you ever have that from your investors or do they basically... No, our investors are not... Um, uh, are not deeply involved with us uh, on an operational basis. You don't have them calling and saying, I want my money back. And- no, and that's not how venture capital funds work right. with institutional investors. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a long-term partnership and a long-term commitment. We have a very engaged relationship with our, with our investors. We're, we're friends with many of them. Um, we we you know, are very responsive to them whenever they need something or want something or want feedback, and we listen very carefully to them because they see a broader world of other venture capital activity, mm. and so they have a lot of information that's helpful to us uh, in terms of how we think about what's going on in the world and vice versa because we have so many co-investment relationships and we have opinions about the venture industry as a whole, and that's useful for them. So it's a very nice um, and, and thoughtful conversation. Um, with a tone since we started from scratch, you know, you know, three, three and a half years ago, um, you know, the idea of the, the conversation is that 10, 15 years from now, we're still going to have a very open conversation with our investors, a very predictable sort of set of behaviors on our part with a single-minded goal in terms of what's success. Um, so it's been, uh, it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's been really, uh, we're, 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 very, we're very honored to have the group of investors we have because they're people that really understand early stage uh, VC investing. And so we're not in this sort of tussle of, oh, my God, what's good, what's bad, what's working, what's not working. There's not drama around it. There's plenty of feedback and thoughtful uh, uh, hmm. discussion. I did an interview with Charlie O'Donnell, and he talked about how he was, because he was upstream from Fred, Fred actually came to him to raise money. And that Fred came through yeah, a broker. Charlie was a GM, right? Yeah. Yeah. But Fred came in through a broker, like so, or a broker or some sort of intermediary of some kind. It seemed like Fred didn't have the direct relationships with the money guys. Well, Fred, that... Fred didn't have a broker. Fred had um, a, uh, what's called... A, and I haven't asked Fred, so I don't know. Yeah, exactly he, he had what's called a placement agent. 
um, which is quite common uh, in the in the venture business. It's you know a person who's either part time works for you, helping you fundraise, that has relationships with a bunch of the LPs, or somebody who has a longer term relationship with you as a firm um, to help you manage those relationships with the LPs. Depending on the type of fund you're raising and where you are in the cycle, um, you know the those those folks help in different ways. So for example, when we raised our fund, it's very interesting. The process of raising a, a fund, you have existing relationships with institutional investors, whatever they are. You then have a bunch of new institutional investors you want to get access to. And um, the access to them, it's, it's no different than an entrepreneur wanting to get access to a venture capitalist right. um, from the standpoint of how you get that access. Um, but interestingly, there's a lot of well-regarded people that have raised money for lots of other funds who only take on funds that they believe will be successful. And so they are a first-layer filter. So if one of them comes to an LP, the likelihood of the LP taking the meeting and taking it seriously is higher. It's a, it's a warmer meeting. It doesn't mean that the LP wouldn't have the meeting in the first place, but it's a warmer start. And there's plenty of cases where there would be people you couldn't otherwise get, you know, get to be responsive. It's not you send them a letter say, hey, I'm raising money. Will you meet with me? It's like the, money goes, the letter goes in the trash can. Right? I mean, you need to figure out a way to make progress. Interestingly, many... Venture capitalists will also offer, you know, we're all, many venture capitalists co-invest, lots of friendships. They'll offer, hey, I know you're raising a fund. I'd be happy to make some introductions. A lot of VCs say to other uh, VCs, hey, can I get some introductions to some of your investors? It was very interesting to me who was helpful in that process and who was not. And we had, uh, we had two, invest, uh, two other VCs who were very, very helpful to us um, and made real introductions that translated into uh, real relationships. Um, one of them was, was Scott Maxwell at a firm called OpenView, who's been a friend of mine. He and I are on the Microsoft uh, Venture Capital Advisory Board. We've been doing that for a while and built a friendship there. Haven't done investments together, but they're friends. And several of his investors are investors in our funds, and those relationships came through real introductions from him. And then the person who was most helpful to us was Fred, who you know knew, knew me really well, you know knew my partners, knew our strategy, believed in what we were doing. And, and really worked to make the introductions. It wasn't just, hey, you guys should meet with, with Brad and Foundry Group. It was, these guys are for real. You know, if you like us, you should pay attention to them. Um, and a number of our LPs, um, you know, overlap. Not all, but a number of them do. And there were some people that were investors in his fund that didn't invest in our fund. They didn't like us for whatever reason, decided not to invest. But sort of of all of the VCs who offered to help, uh, it was interesting how many of them were simply an email to another LP saying, hey, here's this guy that's raising a fund, you guys should get together, of which the LPs never responded. In mm-hmm. other words, it was, it was kind of such a weak introduction that mm-hmm. it was of no value. So it, you know, it created a lot of respect and understanding for me of that kind of advocacy. And I've been, I invest in a number of venture firms with my own money, um, and I, te- I tend to be thoughtful about why I have a strategy for why I'm doing it. But for the fund uh, managers and for the VCs that I really believe in, I work hard for them to make sure that they get those introductions that are real introductions in the same way Fred, uh, Fred did for us. Mm. That's interesting. All right. Um, I've asked you a lot about the other side of the VC business. I'm interested in your thoughts on angel investing. Do you do any angel investing? Well, I, I have. Um, I probably made about 75 angel investments uh, in, in two periods, the 94 to 96 period and then the 2006-2007 period between when the Mobius Fund stopped making new investments and Foundry raised when we raised our first fund. Um, I don't make angel investments now. As part of our fund agreement, I, we agreed with our limited partners that we wouldn't make angel investments personally, all of the investments that we make would go through the fund. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I like to say I'm out of the angel investing business, even though I have a huge amount of experience with it. We do seed investments at Foundry, so we do plenty of investments that look like the same thing that a so lot of... that's what I'm really curious about. So are you, you doing small size investments that are like angel investments? Well, you have to define it carefully. So small size investment for us is uh, $250,000 to $1 million investment. So yes, we do lots of seed investments, probably about... A third of the investments we made out of the fund were investments like that. Um, we are not making $25,000 investments, sprinkling them around all over the place. And as an angel investor, I made a lot of twenty-five, fifty, hundred thousand dollars investments that were part of a larger syndicate. Mm-hmm. Um, in a seed investor, we're usually either half the syndicate, we do it with one other venture firm, or we do it ourselves and we do it with angels you know, following on alongside of us because we're perfectly happy to 
to work with angels, but we're not making you know, a large number of small dollar investments. We're really treating our seed investments the same way we treat any other investment. It just happens to be at the very early part of the cycle um, you know, where we're investing a small amount of capital. Uh, we, I'm obviously very supportive, and I say I, but myself and my partners are very supportive of all the angel investing activity. Uh, you know, through Techstars, we're very, uh, you know, that, that dynamic there obviously has a very strong angel component to it. Um, we love angel investors as co-investors, so we welcome them, uh, you know, and have really good relationships with them. And we've collectively and individually invested in a bunch of the super angel funds that have emerged. Um, I would say some because we think the people are extraordinary and some because we want to support uh, more activity in that area. So, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a dynamic, and this is news-related, so if you listen to this in the future, then there's a lot of change, but I'm going to talk about what's pretty current right now, um, which we don't normally do, but it's just it's pretty interesting, of the, the, the dynamic between Y Combinator, and so basically systematizing what angels are doing, and then angels getting more access to the early deals, um, and then angels wanting to grow and become VCs, which is exactly what you've done, and making things more competitive. Um, some people might think that the angels can disrupt the VCs and basically take grow and just take over the deals themselves. Others might say that the Y Combinators and Techstars of the world can displace the angels um, because they're systematizing the early stage stuff and then also making the deals more expensive. What's your opinion on all of that? I, I actually, I actually think the debates kind of all bullshit. I mean, the the ecosystem of entrepreneurship. The focus of entrepreneurship should be on the entrepreneurs, not on the investors. And I think that there's a lot of noise in the system for whatever reason around the investors right now, angel investors, VCs, etc. And I, you know, I think that there's a lot of very complicated motivations on all sides. Right. Uh, so, so you know, there's probably some positive motivations and some negative motivations, but generally, the the whole thing is just noise because really the idea is. Uh, the, the power and the value of entrepreneurship lives with the entrepreneur and with the companies and the angel investors, the super angels, micro VCs, institutionalized funds, programs like Techstars, uh, venture capital firms, we're all supporting actors in the play. And um, the opportunity of entrepreneurship is one where capital and, and advice and expertise uh, to support entrepreneurship is in support of entrepreneurship. And I don't actually think any of those things are fundamentally in conflict with each other. So I'll, I'll use sort of Techstars, Angels, and VCs as a threat. If I look at the companies, we've had about 70 companies go through Techstars uh, at this point, and with the fourth program in New York, we'll have about 40 a year going through the program, you know, 10 in each of the four cities. Um, those 40 companies, you know, their next round of financing typically comes from some mix of CVC and angel investors. And for those companies that then go on to raise another round of financing, that round of financing is often coming from venture capital investors. They're all part of the investment uh, food chain, and people move around within it. So you have some you know, VCs that are extremely good at seed in investing. You, know, you have some angel investors who are very, very good at writing $25,000 checks, so it'll be interesting to see if they scale up to be good at writing million-dollar checks. And I don't know. Some of them are going to be great at it, and some of them are going to suck at it. In the same way that some investors that are, you know, first-round investors or second-round investors that are used to writing $5 million checks are now trying to write $250,000 checks. Some of them are going to do a great job of it, and some are going to suck at it. That's going to play itself out over time. And interestingly, in 2010, there's a lot more information and a lot easier access to information about how people are doing and how they behave. Right. You know, 15 years, 20 years ago, pre-web, it was very hard to find that out. It was very mysterious. Like, who's a good angel investor and who's a good VC right. investor? It was all sort of urban lore. You had to talk to people. It was passed down from generation to generation. There weren't that many people, so you didn't have that many choices, even though there have always been a large number of angel investors. Um, and, oh, by the way, we're in this little corner of the world in terms of angel investors, and we're talking about software and Internet. There's angel investors that invest in all kinds of things um, in places outside the valley. So the phenomena that's being discussed and debated and all the noise around it is an isolated uh, or, or, you know, it's a very visible part uh, of the entrepreneurial and angel ecosystem, but it's a niche part of it. Um, and if you actually look at the total dollars involved, it's a relatively small number of dollars involved. So... I think the, you know, when I sort of cycle back through the conversation, I'm, I, I would say I'm amused and entertained by a lot of the rhetoric. Uh, I wrote a, uh, a, a thing recently and put it up on my blog that basically said, hey, guys, you know, there's lots of stuff going on here. Let's be real. We're, we're all part of the system. 
And, um, you know, it's going to continue to change, and it's exciting and interesting, um, but it's going to be messy, and it's going to continue to change. I think that's, I think that's good. I think that's a healthy, healthy dynamic. But the, the battle lines that get drawn, especially by people, you know, in the media who want to create conflict, you know, to make it more interesting, or, you know, some of the actors, there may be the case that there are some VCs who are trying to draw some battle lines or some angels who are trying to draw some battle lines. I think that's very short-sighted thinking on their part, if anybody's actually doing that, because, frankly, first of all, they need each other, and more importantly, they're not the thing that matters. <laughs> the thing that matters is the entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs think that a category of investor is shitty. The world's going to know that, and the other great entrepreneurs are going to know that, and that category of investor, that specific investor, is going to be not part of the ecosystem anymore. But are we getting to the point where... Because I, I, I hadn't really, it hadn't, wasn't clear until I saw, I saw a post by James Hong where he, he talked about it, the guy who found it hot or not, that um, maybe Y Combinator is, is displacing angels. Is No, I, I think the premise that anybody can displace somebody else is a very short-term view. So you have a very expansive and complicated market dynamic around entrepreneurial finance. It changes over time. Um, it is not a case where there's a, such an excess ca- uh, surplus of capital in any particular area or expertise. And, oh, by the way, time is a big issue here. Early-stage entrepreneurs want access to people and want their expertise, and part of what makes a great angel investor is their ability to spend time with the entrepreneurs, not just the money, but the time to help that entrepreneur, especially the first-time ones, accelerate what they're doing. And so the idea that all of that could be concentrated in one entity or one investor or a couple of angel groups is, is just nonsense. And, it, you know, again, it makes good copy, but it's kind of like whatever. I mean, that's, you know. It's just nonsense. And, and for, for, you know, for all the people in Silicon Valley that sort of are, are caught up in that debate, my first suggestion to them is, you know, put, get your ass on an airplane and fly somewhere else in the country and try to understand what's going on somewhere else. And if they say, well, there's no place else to invest other than Silicon Valley, that's fine. Stay in Silicon Valley and enjoy yourself. Um, there's a lot of other places where great companies are created around the country uh, than Silicon Valley, not with the same density, not with the same dynamic, and there's an enormous amount of amazing things in Silicon Valley that every other entrepreneurial community can learn from. But it's by no means the only entrepreneurial community uh, that's going on. So, again, that, that's the other dimension of it. It's like the idea that there's an ecosystem that's very insular, and that's the ecosystem, and that's the only one that matters. And it makes no sense. Either. It's interesting what you say because you're, you are exactly right, and the investors have become like the big stars when it really is the entrepreneurs. I mean, they're the ones creating the value, not the investors. It really, I mean, uh, uh, it's crazy. You know, we're one of a VC that we have huge regard for uh, that we've done some investments with, uh, True Ventures. Um, just wrote, John Callahan just wrote a blog post yesterday. I cannot remember the title of it, but something like, you know, Founder something or other. It's a great blog post, sort of in the midst of this latest, you know, debate that came out of this uh, uh, TechCrunch article around uh, Angel Gate and sort right. of the, all the crap that flew around yesterday. And, uh, and, and and apologies to listeners if you're listening to this in the future. We don't normally do this, but it's just such a massive debate right now. I really wanted to ask Brad. You know, it's, uh, and, and I don't know when, uh, you know, it's end of September 2010. And, and you know, True wrote, wrote a great post. And they just said, hey, guys, remember... Like, it's about the entrepreneur. It's about the founders. It's not about us. And uh, I, I, think, I think every angel investor and every venture investor, you know, should, like, you know, put that on their bathroom mirror in the morning <laughs> and make sure they remember, about, remember that. I mean, if you're not focused on trying to help the entrepreneurs be massively successful, how are you going to be successful as an investor? Because you're investing in, in their companies. Right. Um, I'm interested to know... Like realistically, what does a portfolio company get from you? Like, how many portfolio companies do you have right now? We have in the in the fund that we raised in 2007. It's a 225 million dollar fund. Um, we have about 30 investments in the fund. The range of capital we invest in a company is typically between five and 15 million dollars uh, over the life of the company. Our first investment could be as small as a quarter of a million or half a million dollars. Uh, our largest first investment that we've made to date is eight million dollars. So, you know, we're sort of, we sort of end in that as the companies evolve over time in that 5 to $15 million round range per and company. So, so all total companies, including what you did before with Mobius, is 40 companies? No, no, no. We have 30, we have 29 uh, companies from the Foundry portfolio. We still have about 40 old Mobius companies that we're still uh, involved in their active 
Uh, and of that set, you know, in terms of our level of activity in those companies, there's a number of those companies that we're, you know, we're not on the boards, we're supportive of, we're um, a meaningful investor in, and then there's a few that we're still very involved in. So there's about 70 companies? Across the whole, uh, the whole shooting match. But I'd say, you know, the vast majority of our energy goes into uh, probably, you may be right, maybe about 40 companies total of that, of that pool of 70. So, okay, so I'm, I'm curious... I'm, I'm going to ask some tough questions here because you know, I'm, I'm really curious. And I, uh, you don't, tough you questions are always good. <laughs> so um, let's say it was five, six years ago when you were doing Mobius and I came along and I, I um, had built one of those companies and it didn't do well. And But I'm, I'd still raise money and I'm still like puttering along. And I'm, I'm, you, you said there's 40 you focus on. What if I'm in that 30 that, that, that you're not focusing on now? And I, I need to reach out to you and I need help from you. How does that work and, and what can I get? Well, we're always responsive to anybody that reaches out to us. So, you know, I, we have a pretty simple hierarchy of people. And, and I, I think that each of my three other partners and I probably think about it pretty similarly. I'll speak for myself in terms of the hierarchy, but I think I think we all view it the same way is that at the top of the hierarchy is family. So that's, you know, my wife calls, my father calls, my brother calls, that's the top. Next layer in the hierarchy is uh, my other partners. So if any of the three of them need something, they're next. Uh, the next in the hierarchy are um, our investors. So if anybody, if any of our investors call or need something, we're immediately responsive to them. And the next in the hierarchy uh, are the companies that we've invested in. And we don't really differentiate in that hierarchy because within that segment of the hierarchy, um, we have plenty of capacity to handle all of those interactions. So within that, you know, if we're an investor in your company, you'll get a real response from us. I would say that the natural communication patterns tend to flow towards whoever's on the board uh, of the company. So there's some segmentation there. But all, all four of us are involved in all of our portfolio companies. So um, oftentimes the entrepreneurs will reach out to different ones of us for specific things that they think we can help with. And we're very good internally, because there's not that many of us, about communicating, keeping everybody in the loop about what's going on. Then beyond that, you have sort of the next wave of all of the interactions, right? So, um, you know, if you ask a random entrepreneur how accessible, uh, you know, is Brad Feld, you get different answers from different people. I've got a friend who said he's, he's I mean, he's just here in Boulder, and he's come along and met with you in, during your office hours. So yep. you're pretty accessible. So we try, right? We try hard. But it's, it's not in a random, chaotic way, right? It's thoughtful about this is, the, this is the top of the hierarchy, and any company that we've invested in is in that top part of the hierarchy. So let's say I'm, in, I'm, I'm running one of those failing companies. I'm, you know, I'm giving myself a bad example for myself, but I'm, I'm running a failing company, and I, you know, we're trying to figure out how to make things work, and I need two hours of your time. Can I come in and get a meeting sure. and sit down with the, sure. you and help figure out a, a strategy? Sure. I, unlikely if you're running along a company that's been stumbling along for a while and it's failing, the two hours is going to solve the problem. Right. Um, but you know, if that's going to be helpful, sure, absolutely. And, and so what other kind of assistance? I mean, what is typical assistance you talked about instead of you trying to, 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 to figure out what they wanted, you, you let them request things of you. So what types of things well, do you Well, so it varies a lot. I mean, part of the engaged dynamic between an entrepreneur and an investor where there's real engagement is that there's a relationship that's developed that's substantial. So, for example, um, I'm on the board um, uh, of a company uh, called NewsGator, which is a Mobius investment. Um, I had dinner last night with the CEO, uh, J.B. Holston, and, and J.B. and I have developed a very, you know, we've worked together now for five, six years. NewsGator's doing extremely well. We get together once a quarter for dinner, and we've just decided that's a good rhythm for the two of us. He travels a lot. He's very busy running a business that's growing, but we like to spend time with each other, and to have a two-hour dinner, three-hour dinner once a quarter is a very comfortable rhythm. We don't meet face-to-face -face, uh, throughout the year other than that, but we always have a nice quarterly evening. That quarterly evening, we cover a lot of business stuff, sort of what, what's going on now, but we spend most of our energy talking about what's going forward. So we have a quarterly rhythm of looking forward together in the context of that. We have regular board meetings. We email all the time, so there's tons of interaction. But the physical interaction is very segmented. That's a different physical interaction, for example, uh, than other companies you know, that we have in our portfolio. Where uh, and I, I'll just give another example, which would be uh, a company like uh, a Standing Cloud, where the CEO and I, uh, Dave Joke, um, we're also very good friends. Dave was my partner in my first business. We've had a very long-standing relationship, 
and uh, we're close friends. We just spent a couple of days together uh, in New York at the U.S. Open. Uh, you know, we all went to New York together for uh, for a long weekend. His wife recently turned 50, and we took her there for her 50th birthday. And but he and I get together from a business perspective. Um, you know, roughly once a week. I like to say we probably do two or three times a month. We don't. We're not religious about once a week, but it's an hour once a week. They're still a young company. They're, you know, raised. They raised a couple of uh, small rounds of financing from us. They're now getting to the point where their product's ready to ship into the market. And the meetings are the hour-long meetings are me, Dave, my partner Jason Mendelson, who works very closely with me and Dave, and is very good friends with Dave as well. And then Todd Vernon, who's the CEO of another company we're investors in called Legit. Uh, who's, a group, who's on the board of, of Standing Cloud. He's a technical entrepreneur. Dave's a technical entrepreneur, so we wanted them sort of matched up with that. So we meet, you know, let's say two, three times a month for an hour. Again, lots of email, right? We have our own rhythms. And the things that I help JB with, I don't help JB with anything operational in a substantive way. I'm not very involved in product strategy anymore at NewsGator, although I was very involved in product strategy two or three years ago. Most of my energy with JB now is looking forward about how do we get the company from X to 2X and what kind of marketplace moves do we need to do to do that. And, you know, some high-level relationship dynamics and occasionally some people issues that come up are the kinds of things we talk about. Conversations with Dave are almost entirely around people uh, and product and really focus deeply on the product. Another example would be a company called Gist, which is in Seattle. Uh, we have a monthly board meeting, so I have a monthly rhythm with GIST. I go see, I go to Seattle. I have, we have a couple of investments there. I tend to try to stack the board meetings together, and ICTA and his partner uh, Steve Newman uh, and the rest of the leadership team uh, once a month. We have usually a couple hour meeting. Uh, that meeting is very operational. Right, we're, we're products in the market. There's a lot of stuff around product strategy. There's a lot of stuff around product execution. Um, there's a lot of stuff around sort of go to market dynamics in that in that discussion. And then if you looked at our emails, you know, the sort of continual email conversations, TA and I tend to do a lot of, you know, five, 10 minute, uh, instead of emails, uh, uh, web chats, right? So we get online together, we do a quick video chat about a specific thing that he's thinking about that he wants my feedback on. Mm -hmm. And most of those things are often partner or product you know, related questions, but it's more efficient for him on those rather than wait and stack them all up, get together once a week, which you know, we can't really comfortably do. I mean, I guess we could do a weekly video conference. It's just easier to have ad hoc interactions that way. Financing strategy has come up a couple of times. We ended up deciding collectively not to go out to market to raise additional funding when we raised the most recent round because we were really happy with the progress of the company. Um, and we just decided to fund it ourselves with, uh, with our co-investor. But there were a lot of conversations around, you know, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Is that a bad signal to the market that we did it ourselves versus get a new co-investor? Is it worth our time relative to the other things that we're doing now? What does that mean? So it's, it's not that I wait for the CEO necessarily to reach out to me. It's that I'm very aware that each entrepreneur has a different cadence and a different set of things they need help with and want help with. And my job is to adapt to them rather than to impose some structure on them. And uh, hopefully that, the specific illustrations sort of talk about right. some different pieces of that. So you and, try to work with the way they come forward. And, and oh, by the way, that changes over time. Right. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't expect that three years from now, you know, three times a month for an hour, that's the right cadence for, for Dave and for Standing Cloud. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know what the right cadence is going to be in three years. Um, but I would say that the, the uh, uh, our goal is to try to um, help as much as we can in any of the areas that we can. And it's very interesting because I'm using examples that are, that are me-centric. My partners help in different ways with each other's companies and vice versa. So, you know, from a, a, a pure product perspective, a couple of us are extremely good at certain pieces of that. If you're doing anything in ad tech, my partner Seth is by far the deepest in ad tech of any of us. Oh, really? You have people who invest in ad tech? Well, so we don't invest in ad tech specifically. We have a theme we call glue. And within Glue, which is the connective tissue of, of the Internet is the way we think about it, and it's at the application layer, not at the system or network layer. So we have a series of companies in Glue. Within that, we have about four companies, I think it was four, that are ad tech related. We have AdMeld, Trigit, Trotta, Mandelbrot. I think those are the four. Um, and we're actually in the process of rolling out, separating those into a separate theme. We're going to call the theme Adhesive. Um, sort of apply on the word ad, apply on the word glue. They're all ad tech. If an ad tech deal comes in, we don't look at it as ad tech. 
right? Does it fit within, you know, glue or, or glue or adhesive, as we'll call it? But within that, because Seth has spent so much time in those companies in the ad tech universe, he's very deep and understands the whole ecosystem extremely well. You know, I think many people are mystified, even, you know, executives of these companies are mystified the difference between SEM, SEO, you know, sort of how to think about, you know, organic, paid, you know, and, and different dynamics around um, search or other kinds of discovery, and then all the different ad networks and how the ad networks. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in that. As real-time bidding emerges, all of a sudden the the whole thing changes again. The measurement systems and actually how to think about the measurement dynamics and what things are being gamed versus not being gamed, and what you should really be thinking about. You know, there's a lot of noise around that. And you know, we have a company that's thinking about doing, uh, you know, an SEM campaign, and they have you know somebody that they've hired to do an SEM campaign. You know, that person may or may not really have a clue, right? And they may not really understand what they're doing. Or you have a company that's on the edge of one of these areas that's trying to interface with or has as customers something in this particular area. And, you know, we have, we have sort of that expertise. So instead of each of us trying to be as deep as we possibly can in every area, we're very aware and we make sure the, C- the CEOs and the entrepreneurs know which of us have which expertises. We also have lots of different relationships. So I would say my, you know, my relationships with, with large companies and with other VCs and angels are additive and overlap with Jason or Ryan or Sats, but they have their own set of relationships. And so we're very good at making sure that we bring somebody else in. Uh, Ryan's on the board of a company uh, that's doing extremely well right now uh, called Cloud Engines. It makes a product called a Pogo Plug. Um, I'm, I love the product. I love the founders. I'm very close to them, very passionate about the product. I have some uh, relationships with some potential strategic partners that Ryan doesn't have. And, and he has relationships, but not as deeply as I have. And so I've been very involved in working with those strategic partners with the company versus just plugging Ryan into it and then saying, here, you guys go after it. So we, do, we try really hard to move around very seamlessly and support uh, uh, each other and the companies in that way. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I want to ask you lastly about, um, actually, quick off the Kafka question, where's your Fitbit? Where's my Fitbit? Yeah. It's right here. <laughs> Very good. And so Brad just invested it in Fitbit recently. And, um, and so far it's been a lame day. I've only walked 558 steps today. <laughs> really? But, but that's because I got up, I, I took a shower, <laughs> and I got my car, and I drove to the office. But, but, but yes, you can validate that my Fitbit, which I just invested in, is sitting in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it wasn't going to go easy on your bread. No, that's all right. You know, and I would tell you that that you know, if you say, "Where's your pogo plug?" I walk into my office and it's sitting on my desk. Okay. And and you should call out VCs for that. I think it's you know, it's it's just absolutely ridiculous to me that VCs would not obsessively use the products they've invested in. I don't understand it, and I, I see it all over the place. And some do, but some don't, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Hmm. Um, and by the way, we invest in plenty of things that we, we don't use every day, so it's not that we can only invest in things that we use every day. We don't use AdMeld. We don't have a site that has enough traffic. Hmm. Um, but you know, we understand it really, really well. So I, I've always been really mystified um, by this, you know, where's your Fitbit? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> that, that would be kind of a lame response. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about is uh, Techstars. Um, what's your relationship with Techstars? How does that work? And tell, sure. tell us a little bit about it. So um, I co-founded Techstars with uh, David Cohen, who's a CEO, and two other guys, uh, David Brown, who was David Cohen's partner in his first business, uh, Pinpoint, and Jared Polis, who's a very successful entrepreneur, did BlueMountainArts.com and did uh, uh, Pro Flowers, um, which got bought by Liberty Media. Blue Mountain Arts got bought by Excite. And Jared is currently... You invested in Blue Mountain Arts? No, I didn't. Jared, Jared okay. was the founder of it. Right. So, um, and, you know, BlueMountainArts.com was started by him here, but he and I were were friends at the time. I wish I had invested. He's like a trillionaire now, isn't he? Uh, you know, a semi-trillionaire. <laughs> semi he's done very, very well. Um, and now he's a, a congressman for, uh, you know, in the House for, for this district. So he's been a very good friend. At the time, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't in Congress. He was still doing some entrepreneurial stuff. And um, the four of us started it together in 2006. 
and really it was you know David was the was the motive force behind it and has always been the motive force behind it. You know, I was part of the. Are you a partner? Are you an investor in it? Is well, it so I was. Uh, it's a separate business, totally separate from Foundry Group. In 2006, I invested in it the same way I was making angel investments. Subsequently, we've come up with a long-term financing strategy for TechStars, which, if you want, I'll explain. Um, but we, uh, uh, we as Foundry Group, the fund is not an investor in it, but the four of us as individuals are investors in the entity that is TechStars. Uh, as it goes forward, as are many other angel investors and venture capital firms. So we've opened up the investment group to any of the mentors uh, and uh, uh, local VCs in the different markets, New York, Boston, Seattle, Boulder, that want to participate in funding the program. So essentially my relationship is I was a co-founder with David. My partners at Foundry were very involved um, you know, from the beginning. So really, even though I have a co-founder title, my level of involvement is not dramatically different than Jason, Seth, uh, or Ryan's in terms of our support of the program. Um, I'm, I have stayed very close to David, and Jason and I, I think, probably helped David a lot with his broad strategy. So as he thinks about expansion and what to do, the two of us are two of his key go-to guys in terms of that. Um, but he really runs the business, and may, he makes the ultimate decisions about what he wants to do. Um, sort of through the course of that, um, we've invested, obviously, as individuals in the program, and then Foundry Group has now invested in three of the 70 companies that have gone through the program. So <coughs> we, you know, we, we don't invest broadly because many of the companies that go through Techstars are not in our themes. So they're just so. Is it, so Techstars is not part of Foundry, so no, it's, it's separate. Totally separate you invest. Is that a negative signal for companies going through Techstars if you guys yeah. don't invest? I don't think so at all for a couple of reasons. One is just the data has demonstrated that it really has no correlation. We've been very clear that um, uh, in the first two years we didn't invest in any of the Techstars companies, even though many of them, about 70% of them, raised money. Um, we're, we're very supportive mentors. All four of us are active as mentors in the program. Um, and we me often mentor companies that we wouldn't invest in, um, that don't fit within our themes. Um, but we also always gravitate towards the companies that fit within our themes. Um, and we tend to try to help them as much as we can, and occasionally we'll invest in those. So I think the, the broader community sort of looks at it, and, and, and I think anybody that knows us understands that we're, you know, we only do, you know, seven, eight investments a year. They're highly thematic. Um, that's our first filter. And if you looked at the 70 Techstars companies, the three that we've invested in probably, you know, there's probably only, you know, three or four or maybe five, you know, that you could argue map to a particular theme. So, uh, I, I, you know, in year one and year two, there was a lot of concern about signaling. People talked about it a lot, and we were just very clear about, you know, this is how we're going to do it. Interestingly, we've addressed the signaling issue pretty aggressively. David has, um, uh, David has an angel fund uh, that he raised called Bullet Time Ventures, and he won't lead a Techstars investment. So even though he runs a Techstars program, and Bullet Time doesn't invest in only Techstars companies. He invests in lots of other companies as an angel investor. Um, but he's very conscious that he doesn't want to participate in that signaling dynamic either. Mm. So he will only follow versus lead. Um, so he continues to support and be very actively involved in all the companies. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that. I mean, the goal of the program is to help first-time entrepreneurs. And the worst thing you can do in terms of helping first-time entrepreneurs is limit their options. So, you know, part of the dynamic is make sure that you do it in such a way that you enhance their options um, in a very thoughtful way. So... Um, you know that's that's our relationship with it. Um, the you know the the expansion to other cities. You know we the four of us have invested in each of the other cities as well. But we're small investors. You know it's a uh, in terms of the amount that we own, it's a relatively small percentage. Not unlike any of the other investors. Um, other things that have come out of it. David and I wrote a book uh, called Do More Faster, uh, which is available. Uh, obviously, you can buy it online on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, its uh, publication date is October uh, October fourth. It's supposed to be in stores around the, the U.S. October twentieth, and it's written by us and many of the TechStars entrepreneurs and mentors. So we have about eighty chapters. Eighty chapters. Yeah, small, two three page chapters organized into seven sex seven themes. Mm. Um, and each theme is a, a section. So I guess each theme is a chapter, and within each chapter, there's you know these little two to three page vignettes. Um, some written by us, some written by mentors, some written by entrepreneurs. 
um, that talk about the process of early stage entrepreneurship and are very experiential. It's not prognosticating advice. It's real examples of experiences people have had within their lessons and advice on top of it, within a lot of connective tissue between the stories. So, you know, it's a, it's a book that when I look at books that first-time entrepreneurs can buy, when we sat down to write it, we said, let's write something that's, that's unique and that's different than the two ends of the spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you have what we call the ego books, right? You too, Mr. First-Time Entrepreneur, could someday be rich and famous like me and have right. a private plane and, and drink fancy wine. Right. And some of those stories are fun, but they're not that helpful in right. terms of being instructive. And then the other end, which is a consultant book, which is you, Mr. Entrepreneur, here's how you start your business which is not that helpful either because it's not that applicable. It's, it's too generic. It's framework-oriented. So we tried to pick something that you know, first-time entrepreneurs could really relate to and sort of immerse themselves in. And also, at the same time, each of the, the short vignettes stand on their own. So if you're looking for information about you know, fundra- fundraising, there's a chapter on fundraising. If you're looking for information about product, there's a chapter on product. And there's just a lot of information through that. So there's a lot of good things that have come out. Um, uh, you know, from all of our experiences. And, it, you know, writing this book has really catalyzed a lot of that learning for us, and, you know, forced us to focus on what do we learn about uh, early-stage entrepreneurship. Hmm. What's your favorite part of the book? What's my favorite part of the book? We wrote The last section is, um, uh, the last theme of the seven is work-life balance. And I've heard over and over again that this sort of debate about should work-life balance even be part of the discussion around entrepreneurship. And, you know, entrepreneurs shouldn't have work-life balance and it shouldn't be something that matters and you should just work and work and work and work and work and that's all. You should just be completely obsessed. And as somebody who has always worked extremely hard um, but who has, uh, uh, you know, now a 17-year marriage that's very important to, to me and a wife who's a very important part of my life. She chooses your shirts. She chooses my shirts and she chooses a lot of other things I do. Um, uh, that relationship, um, and not just my relationship with her, but her influence on how I spend my time, even with this incredibly high intensity of work, um, has been very interesting. And learning how to get there has been very instructive because I really didn't, uh, you know, it took me until I was 30 to get to the point where I had to figure something out. And really until I was probably 35 um, before I was motivated to figure something out. So I moved to Boulder in 95 was kind of the first step. And in 2000, um, uh, you know, Amy basically told me she was done. Uh, and, and we had a, a long, I won't tell the preamble to the story, it's too long, but we get to a place for a weekend and at the end of the day, we're getting into bed and she looks at me and she says, I'm done. And it was, it was a Friday night. I'm like, yeah, man, that was a tough week. I'm really tired. Yeah. She says, no, 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 I'm done. Like, I don't want this relationship anymore. This is not... You know, I love you, I think you're amazing, but this is not satisfying to me. And I'm like, well, and I'd been divorced once before. I married my, my high school girlfriend and got divorced. It was good for three days, got divorced pretty quickly, so it was more like a bad breakup. Um, uh, and we had no kids, so there's no, no ongoing relationship. And Amy said, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're not even a good roommate. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I could get a better roommate than you. And, you know, that was a wake-up call. And I said, all right, well, I'm not done. I don't want to be done with this relationship. I'm not interested in... Uh, you're the person I want to spend my life with. Let's understand, you know, I'm, I've got an engineer's brain. You know, give me some rules, you know, and let's come up with some rules that will help us, you know, do that. And 10 years ago, we, we instituted a handful of rules that we still follow that really create uh, some balance. And the chapter I wrote in that section is uh, one of those rules, which we call the, the quarterly week off the grid. Right. Where every week, and I've written about it on my blog, every week uh, I give her my cell phone on, uh, as we leave. Uh, on vacation somewhere, and at the end of the week, she gives it back to me. No email, no phone. If there's an emergency, my assistant Kelly can find me. My partners know how to find me. You know, there's rarely an emergency, um, and every now and then I have one or two things I got to deal with, um, and but they're well understood in advance. And interestingly, all my partners are now doing this, and it's incredible because what it does is it uh, it gives you space. Uh, to really recharge your batteries and to spend time with your family, but then also in the back of your mind to be processing a lot of the stuff that you need to process so that when you come back, you're really ready to go. And it's one of multiple things that I think are very important for entrepreneurs if they want to sustain that pace over a long career, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's one thing to say you're 23 years old and you're not looking past 24. It's another thing you know, to be in your 30s and say, I'm going to keep doing this for the next 20 or 30 years because I love doing this. 
But how do you manage that and how do you sustain that in a way that's, that's healthy physically, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera? So I, I like that section of the book because I think it's one that's, that will speak to a lot of people and is an area that I think is, is uh, for whatever reason, under-discussed or mythologized. I mean, I have a lot of people who just say, you know, why bother? You know, that's, you know, work as hard as you can when you're young, make as much money as you can, and then, you know, then sort of have balance later. The problem is you don't know when you're going to die. Right? The, the end point is not determinate. I mean, I guess it could be determinate. You could make it determinate right? by, by offing yourself. But it's indeterminate. You could die when you're 27. You could die when you're 104. And so how do you, you know, you have to live now, not, you know, do something now to live later. And uh, I think that's a good thing. I, you know, I, I didn't really ever hear that until I was faced with it. Um, so that's that's a part I'm particularly proud of in the book. But I, I, I think the whole book, I'm, I, I, the amount of material and the amount of knowledge and insight from the mentors, but especially from the first-time entrepreneurs and just sort of reading their stuff after they'd gone through the Techstars program and been you know running their businesses for a year or two and just how they reflected on it. I mean, some of the chapters just give you chills because you know it's it's just such powerful stuff from you know somebody who I knew as you know, a newbie entrepreneur who had never really gone through anything and just the level of maturity a year or two later and the depth of their insight into what matters and what doesn't matter is really fascinating. Cool. Thank you, Brett. You're welcome.